The following audio is from Hope Hill Church. To learn more about Hope Hill Church, please visit hopehillchurch.org. As our ushers take our offering and you uh, fumble around in your Bible to find John chapter 2, I'm going to catch those of you up who may be joining us anew. Uh, We started a a journey through the book of John. Uh, John was a a best friend to Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples, and he's written four books that we have in our Bibles today. He wrote the Gospel of John, which is one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He wrote three letters uh, called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then he also wrote that interesting book, the book of Revelation. Today, we are continuing our journey, and I'm going to take you a step backwards to John chapter 2. A couple weeks ago, John uh, chapter 3 was covered by Pastor David. He took us beautifully through the first part of that, and next week we'll jump back to John chapter 3, but we skipped over a key section that is very important for us to see, and my goal is to work through every word in the Gospel of John over the next year or so. So if you have your Bibles open to John chapter 2, I'm going to read today's passage and then we'll put it in context. John chapter 2, starting at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered earlier that it was written in Psalm chapter 69, zeal for your house will consume me. A Psalm of David. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you have to show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He didn't need anyone to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. This passage is so significant for a number of reasons. I'm going to do my best to try and cover this over the next 20 or 25 minutes with you. If you remember a couple weeks ago when I was teaching, uh, we talked about the first part of chapter 2. Jesus was at a wedding, and it recorded the very first miracle of Jesus. It was called a sign. In fact, throughout the book of John, everywhere you see a miracle, John never calls it a miracle. He calls it a sign. The difference between a miracle and a sign is a miracle is something you can look at and be awestruck by. You can look at that and say, wow, that was an awesome 
act. That was an awesome magic trick. That was an awesome miracle. But a sign points us to something else. And here, John is trying to get through to the readers, those of us today, and to those who are witnessing these miracles, that these miracles were not cool events in and of themselves, but they served a greater purpose in pointing us to Jesus. That is what John wants us to see here, and we're going to see the Jews ask for a miracle. They're going to say, what sign can you show us? And we'll get into that in a few minutes. But if you remember back to the beginning, we see Jesus at a wedding. Now, what's interesting about this time of year in the Jewish culture is the week of Passover is at hand. Jesus grew up, he's about 30 years old now, and every year his parents and he himself would travel during the week of Passover to the temple in Jerusalem. Every Jew from hundreds of miles around would make this trek each year, bringing a sacrifice and remembering the Passover from what happened back in the days of captivity in Egypt. When when the uh, Pharaoh had taken the the Israelites into captivity, there was a number of plagues that unfolded through the um, hand of Moses, through the power of God, and one of the last acts was the passing of the angel of death. The Jews who put their hope and faith in, in, in God were told to sacrifice a lamb, to take a blood of the lamb, and to put it on the doorposts of the home. And for those who had done that, by an act of obedience and faith, the angel would pass over. But for those in the land who had not walked in obedience and obeyed that step, they lost their firstborn child. This ultimately was, as all miracles and signs in the Old Testament were, they were to point us to something greater. That there was a greater Passover coming. There was a greater lamb that would be sacrificed. There was a greater blood that would be shed. And here we see the unfolding of another Passover. It's Jesus' 30th year. The week of Passover celebration has started. He starts at this wedding, and there... They've run out of wine. So Jesus commands the servants to fill up these bathing jars, these huge jars that would be used for ceremonial cleansing according to the Jewish ways. And Jesus said, fill up those jars with water, and he turns them all to wine. This wasn't just, again, some cool miracle for Jesus to go, I'm about to be famous, I need to start attracting a crowd, let me show them my power. But instead, his heart was consumed with a greater wedding. With a wedding that he came to be the groom of. With a wedding that would be he finally united truly with his bride. That which would be called the church. Those who had been transformed by the blood of Jesus. Shed by the lamb who would die to take away the sins of the world. And if you know Jesus as your Savior, the scriptures say that you are a part of the church and you are a part of the bride of Christ. And one day there will be a future wedding when all of us who are alive in Christ 
will follow those who have died before us, those who have known Christ, the scriptures say, will be risen from the dead, and we will be caught up in the air with them, and we will be united with our groom, our Savior, our King, our Christ. And so Jesus uses this Passover wedding to say there is a greater wedding coming, and there is a greater way in which you should be cleansed. It's not about religious ritual and you bathing in these mason jars and you thinking that you can somehow make yourself right with God. The only way that you can be made right with God, the only way that I can be made right with God is by the shedding of the ultimate lamb. The scriptures say without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus came to be that ultimate final sacrifice us in our place. And so a couple days pass, and the journey down to Jerusalem takes place, and Jesus walks into the temple. Now, back in this time, we have this temple. Uh, King Solomon had built it, and it had been reconstructed a couple times before Jesus appeared on earth, but when he shows up, he finds the temple not fulfilling the purpose of the temple. But instead what has happened is that you've got all of these Jews on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem going to the temple to pay their temple tax, kind of like a tithe, and to give their sacrifice. And for those who maybe lived a couple blocks away, a mile away, five miles away, it may not have been too difficult for them to bring their sacrifice, which would have been a lamb or a goat or another animal. And they brought these for years, every year. But the Levitical system and the priests of the day said, this is getting a little tough for some, especially those who have to travel 50, 100 miles. Let's make it easier on them. And let's raise up our own cattle, our own sheep, our own goats, and let's have them ready. And and, and when they come, they can buy them from us. And so over the years in the system, people would show up, and those who lived far away, they were bringing foreign currency. And in order to pay the temple tax, you had to pay in the right currency. So, hey, let's set up a banking system here. Let's get the money changers here. And that way they can exchange their money and pay with the right kind of coinage. And they can buy their pigeon or sheep or oxen or whatever it is they need. And while we're doing it, you know, temple could use another coat of paint. Let's raise the interest a little bit. Uh, we need some upgrades. You know, we, we deserve a wage for the work we're doing. And they started charging interest and they started selling things at, 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 at wages that weren't necessarily fair, but that's not the point of what John's trying to get across to us today. What's going on is that Jesus enters the temple, and let's look at this together. The Passover, verse 13, of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling those things. And so, in seeing this, what does Jesus do? What's he do, guys? Have you ever seen a picture of Jesus with a whip? How many of you heard that Bible story at Vacation Bible School? The flannel graph of Jesus with his whip. How is it that Jesus can be God and a God of love and still be angry? Have any of you had someone try to hurt your child? Anybody? Has your child ever been accidentally mistreated? 
or purposely mistreated. And out of love, how many of you ever gotten angry? God is angry. Jesus is God, by the way. We, we covered that in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. Jesus is God in flesh, and he comes to the very place. The temple existed for a couple reasons. The temple, first of all, was a place where God and man would meet. God, of course, is omnipresent, and he is everywhere at all times, but there was something special about the temple. It is where God would meet with man. There's a lot more we could say, but we don't have time to get into the details. The second key thing we see here is the temple was also a place where you would come and confess, where you would come and offer up prayers of repentance, and where you would come and worship, and where you would come and be broken and contrite. The psalm says, God loves a broken and contrite spirit. It was a place where we would come and 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 and, and lay down our sacrifice because we knew we were broken. And we would come and try to let God know how sorry we were and how much we needed his forgiveness. The temple was a place where sacrifice would be offered. And Jesus shows up. And he doesn't hear prayers of saints. He doesn't hear the melodic worship of worshipers singing. He doesn't hear the broken heart of us with a broken and contrite spirit. The scriptures tell us a couple times here and there, uh, one occasion Jesus is talking about two people who are praying and he mentions this man over here standing on the street corner saying, God, I'm so grateful that I'm not like that man. He is wretched. Instead, you have blessed me and I'm so good because I give my blessings to the poor and I am such a righteous man. And this man, on the other hand, Jesus said, stood in front of God and fell to his knees and beat his chest saying, woe is me, I'm a sinful man. Forgive me, God, I'm not worthy even to come into your presence. Jesus said, it is that person who walked away having experienced the presence of God. Here, when Jesus enters the temple, there's no brokenness, there's no worship. He sees a marketplace. He sees people haggling over the price of trying to, hey, which sheep, that sheep's cheaper, let's buy that one. Instead of the journey of, of getting your choice lamb from your own herd, if that's what it's called, and, and going through the sacrifice of bringing in and offering it, we've made it a temple of convenience. And not a place of brokenness and praise and the worship of our God and King. Many Jews, they would come to town, okay, pay my temple tax, done. Uh, buy this pigeon, here you go, priest, on my way, I'm going shopping. And for far too many of us, that is what religion has become. That is what church and relationship has become. We've made it a set of religious rites and rituals, thinking we can just check the box and somehow be right with God. 
in the Old Testament, we see three main characters. For those of you going through the Bible Project, you've seen a number of prophets, people who would declare the Word of God and show the nation of Israel and others where they are wrong and off course and not following a God and a King who loves us. Prophets. We see priests, those who are there to prepare the people for the presence of God. Their job was to take care of and cleanse the temple. And we see kings. A king like David who had a heart after God and wanted to build a temple but was not able to because of a number of situations and circumstances. But his son Solomon had the ability to build a temple. There were kings all throughout the Old Testament, some with hearts after God and some God of God of themselves. And here we see Jesus fulfilling the role of all three. As prophet, priest, and king. Telling those who are there that they are missing the mark. They have, it's not about checking a box and, and conveniently getting a lamb and making a sacrifice and getting on with your life. It's, it's about getting your life right. And, and, and he, as a priest, he cleanses the temple. He takes out a whip of cords and he overturns tables. I mean, that scene must have been crazy. And You know, this isn't the only time that Jesus does this. For those of you that, that are aware, you may have remembered this story from another place. Three years from now, Jesus will enter Jerusalem again, that time riding on the back of a a donkey. And he rides into town a week before he is crucified. Many are thinking he's coming to be their king who's going to set them free from Roman rule. And they're yelling, Hosanna, as they're waving palm branches. And he rides into the temple and he does it again. He finds that they're right back at it. There, he, he lets them have it again. The interesting thing about the Passover is Jesus is not just a figure who shows up on one Passover day and we get this interesting story. This story and Passover is about Jesus. This is his story because all of history is his story. All that is, is made and is because of him. We are made by God and for God. And outside of life with him, we are not living the life that he ever invited us or intended us to live. So Jesus, as priest, cleanses the temple, driving all of it out. And then he fulfills his role as king. And these words, look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, these were the religious leaders, those in charge of the temple that day. They came to him and wondering, Who is this guy? Now, what's interesting is at any time they could have had him arrested. There were temple guards. There was even a a, a regiment of Roman soldiers they could have called on. But something was different about Jesus. He, He spoke as if he knew what he was talking about. He spoke and his presence somehow had authority. I wonder why. And so they come to him and they say, what sign do you have to show us? And this is just another symbol of the evil and perverse generation that existed then, but also exists today. For many of us, we worship Jesus not because of who he is, but because what he can do for us. In a couple weeks, we're going to look at John chapter 6. We're going to see the feeding of the 5,000 and 
we're going to see this great flock of people chasing after Jesus. And on, all, on many accounts, we can say, wow, look at the following. Jesus is being successful. And the next morning, this huge mob of crowd finds Jesus. And they come to him and they say, Jesus, where have you been? We've been looking for you. We're looking for you. And Jesus stops and he confronts him and he says, wait a minute. Are you really looking for me? Or are you just looking for me because yesterday I was able to fill your belly? Many of us, we're seeking a God of convenience. We're seeking a Savior who can fix our marriage or help our kids instead of falling in love with the Savior who died for us and makes us whole. Jesus came to the temple and the Jews asked, what sign do you have to show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What are you talking about? It took 46 years for this temple to be built. How in the world do you think that, this, that you could destroy it and rebuild it in three days? I'm sure the disciples who are standing there witnessing Jesus, they've seen him do, you know, they, they saw him turn water into wine. They, they've heard him teach, but I'm sure even they're wondering, really, three days you could blow this thing up and boom, back? Are we going to have to help do that? The scripture tells us that later they understood these words. He said, he said these words, verse 21, but, but he was not speaking about the building, the, the stone building that was there. He was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead three years from now into the future, after he dies on the cross, after he comes back to life, after he, he, he somehow, like a ghost, uh, passes through the wall and appears to the disciples and says, you know, uh, it, it's me, it's really me. Feel the scars in my hand, touch the, the hole on my side where the spear pierced me. It's really me. And he eats with them. It's really me. All of a sudden it clicked. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said these words. And they believed the scripture. have a God, a King, a Savior, who doesn't want to just impress us with, with some kind of weird trickery. We don't have a God who's just trying to raise up a fan base so that he can have a world tour. We have a God who became our Savior because he took our place on the cross. And he died taking your sins and mine upon himself, he who never sinned became our Passover lamb. And he stands before those who are thinking they can somehow, through some religious system, offer up enough sacrifices, pay enough taxes, check off enough religious boxes. They somehow think they will earn their way into God's kingdom. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. And they were blind to it all. Destroy this temple. The temple of my body. And I will raise it again. 
No one takes my life, but says in another passage, I lay it down. Jesus laid down his life. The Jews still today, for those of us that went to Israel, we heard about their their desire, their hope. They're hoping to reclaim the temple. It's under Islamic control right now. But they're hoping and they're building an anticipation that one day we got to see a replica of this huge menorah, this big, this tall, solid gold, and they're already building the artifacts that they will bring back to the temple because they believe somehow the temple can still save them. The temple was in their midst and they didn't even recognize the temple. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And we together who believe in him, we make up the temple. The temple is not built by human hands. The temple is those of us who are part of the bride of Christ, the church. It's not a building. It's not a religion. It's the people of God transformed by the spirit of God empowered to serve the mission of God. Do you know him? A lot of people in this world know about a lot of people. How many of you heard of Michael Jordan? I'm running out of time too fast. How many of you heard of Michael Jordan? Raise your hands. How many of you can quote some of his stats? How many of you know when his first basketball game was in high school? How many of you, some of you have like, T-shirts that he wore that has his holy sweat in them. Some of you, you've bought his his uh, sneakers. A lot of people know a lot of things, but if Michael Jordan were to walk in here and you were to walk up to him and say, hey, Michael, he'd be like, who are you? A lot of people know a lot of things about a lot of people, but it doesn't make you right to know that you don't know them. And a lot of people in this time and day, they knew a lot about God, but they didn't know him. There is a belief that Jesus will not accept. The closing words of this passage can be troubling. They can be haunting. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name because they believed in the signs that they saw. Many of us, we worship Jesus for what he can do for us. We believe that he can heal Do I really need to make him the savior of every area of my life? Do I really need to make him my Lord? A lot of us know a guy named Jesus. We've got his picture with a glowing circle around his head hanging in our living room. But do you know him? A lot of people have memorized the words he's written. They've sung songs about him. The scriptures actually tell us that one day when we're all before him as he's on his throne, He will separate us, and to some he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Some in that crowd will say, but wait, 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 we did ministry in your name. We can quote all of your disciples' names. We can can recite all of the things we learn in Awanas. There's so many things we know about you, Jesus. Let us in. never knew me. You knew a lot about me. Sure, you did a lot of religion. But you never surrendered to having a true relationship with me. Jesus is brokenhearted in this temple and he's flipping over tables because they are worshiping a system. Not the king who's standing before them. 
number of years ago, a video was made. Some find it pretty controversial, but you know what? Some found Jesus very controversial as well. I want you to listen to these words and really pay attention. If there's a line or two that offends you, just stick through it to the end. I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian, and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision? I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? Tell single moms God doesn't love them if they've ever had a divorce, but in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice, tend to ridicule God's people, they did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems, and so they just mask it, not realizing religion's like spraying perfume on a casket. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification, like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up the outside, make it look nice and neat. But it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Now I ain't judging, I'm just saying, quit putting on a fake look. Because there's a problem if people only know that you're a Christian by your Facebook. I mean, in every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. See, this was me too, but no one seemed to be on to me. Acting like a church kid while addicted to pornography. See, on Sunday I'd go to church, but Saturday getting faded, acting if I was simply created to just have sex and get wasted. See, I spent my whole life building this facade of neatness, but now that I know Jesus, I boast in my weakness. Because if grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people, it's a hospital for the broken. Which means I don't have to hide my failure, I don't have to hide my sin. Because it doesn't depend on me, it depends on Him. See, because when I was God's enemy, and certainly not a fan, He looked down and said, I want that man. Which is why Jesus hated religion, and for it, he called them fools. Don't you see so much better than just following some rules? Now, let me clarify. I love the church, I love the Bible, and yes, I believe in sin. But if Jesus came to your church, would they actually let him in? See, remember, he was called a glutton and a drunkard by religious men. But the Son of God never supports self-righteousness, not now, not then. Now, back to the point, one thing is vital to mention. How Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do. Jesus says done. Religion says slave. Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage, while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man which is my salvation is freely mine, and forgiveness is my own. Not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. Because he took the crown of thorns and the blood dripped down his face. He took what we all deserve. I guess that's why you call it grace. And while being murdered, he yelled, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because when he was dangling on that cross, he was thinking of you. 
and he absorbed all your sin and he buried it in the tomb, which is why I'm kneeling at the cross saying, come on, there's room. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it because when Jesus said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. So what is a relationship with Jesus all about? I promise we're wrapping up now. At the beginning of chapter 1, we said in order to become a child of God, a child to a parent, that's a relationship. And the only thing that's required is simple belief not a list of actions that we pile up to somehow earn our way into the family. We start at a point of simple belief, putting our faith and trust in what Jesus already did for us and entering into that relationship where we start walking hand in hand through, with him through every area of our life. And yes, as Jesus said, if you love me, walk as I walk. If you love me, Obey my commands. As I love my wife and my children, I want to do and live the way that pleases them. And the same way it is that way with God, out of my love for him and who he is and what he's done for me, I want to follow him. It's not out of a religious feeling of obligation. On Mother's Day or Valentine's Day, I go and buy a card for my wife because I love her, not because I'm obligated to. And so, it's not about what we do, it's about what we believe. It's about a choice we make inside about who he is and what we believe he did for us. So your first step is admitting that you're broken, I'm broken, we're all broken, and we need a Savior. And we put our faith in a Jesus, a God who loves us and died to save us. And so that's step one. Step two is repenting, turning away from thinking we can somehow live right enough to earn God's favor because the scriptures tell us that our best good things smell like doo-doo to Jesus. The Bible says dung. Our good enough is not good enough. And so we repent from trying to earn God's favor, from trying to live life our way and instead make him not just Savior but Lord of our life allowing the Holy Spirit to fill every area, everywhere we eat, sleep, play, and shop. We allow Jesus to be our Savior and Lord because we're made by Jesus for Jesus. And so that means whether you're a doctor, a teacher, or a lawyer, you are first His. Living as His example in the areas in the world where He has placed you. You are the living church, the body of Christ, everywhere you go. And so we have faith in him. We repent from our own way of life and that makes us a child of his. That doesn't mean that everything in your life is going to be perfect from here on out. But it does mean that God will be there in your every storm and every doubt. It's interesting, it's starting to rhyme and I'm not trying to. But he promises to be there with us through every struggle, through every storm. There will be times when we need healing and we don't get it, but he says, I'm there to hold you still. There are times when our children will run off and, and will make decisions we beg God to somehow fix. 
he is still God and he is there with us. There's a difference between pursuing a God of convenience and hoping for happiness and pursuing a God that wasn't convenient for him to go to the cross for us. Most, if not all, of the heroes of the faith did not live a life of convenience. But they lived a life of joy, even in the midst of their suffering. Think of Paul. Paul, one of the greatest writers of the New Testament, written 13 books that we have here in our Bible. Do you think he was always full of happiness? He was always full of joy. Even in the midst of struggles, they came to him and said, you've got to stop preaching this message or we're going to kill you. And he said, you know what? That's great because to die is gain. To be absent from this body means I get to be with Jesus. Okay, fine, we're not going to kill you. We're just going to torture you. Great, because the number of sufferings I have on this earth compare not to the glory of, of being with Christ in heaven. Okay, fine, we're not going to torture you either. We're just going to put you in prison. Awesome, I'll get to witness to all the other prisoners. I'll get to witness to all the other soldiers. Man, it's going to spread. Ah, oh, forget this, we're taking you to Caesar. I've been wanting to talk to him. You could not touch his joy. This life will have its struggles. But Jesus came to be here with us. Are we searching and pursuing a God that will give us happiness and convenience? Or are we simply falling in love with the Jesus who gave up everything for us to free us? Lay down all your idols and all your goals and simply fall in love with him. He will be there with you every moment of the rest of your life, giving you joy that is unshakable. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you that you are a God that loves us. God, we know that there are struggles and trials in this earth, and and there are many times that we simply just come to church because we think that somehow we can rub your genie bottle just the right way and get your blessings and make life easier, but we know it doesn't always work that way. For many, it never works that way. So we pray right now for our brothers and sisters around the world who are in love with you wholly and yet facing persecution every day. We also pray, God, that you would capture our hearts, that we would not try to live and find and seek after a religion that is just about checking boxes and, and, and walking steps, trying to earn your love, but instead surrender completely to you and what you've already done. I pray right now for those in this room who may have never taken that step. God, I pray for those in this room who could be called really religious. But to this day, they don't yet have a relationship with you. And I pray that today hearts would be broken, that we would repent from our, our own way of trying to live life we would surrender to you. Come, Holy Spirit, and have your way in our lives. Help us to fall in love with you simply for who you are and what you've done already for us, setting us free to live a life with you. If you're here this morning, you say, Pastor John, 
I need that kind of relationship with Jesus. I want him in my life. I want his forgiveness. I want to be set free. I put my hope and faith and trust in him. I am grateful that he died on a cross in my place, and I'm going to quit trying to live life on my own. I want him in my life. I want him to be my Lord. I surrender to him today. Would you just raise your hand and say, that's my prayer this morning. Raise your hand if that's you. Father God, I pray for those in this room who are surrendering to you possibly for the first time and asking that your Holy Spirit would come and make your dwelling residing in our lives, transforming us into the people you've called us to be. And God, I also pray for the others in this room, whether they know you or not, that we would die to ourselves daily, that we would find life in you. For those who do know you, Lord Jesus, I pray, even starting with myself, that I would put you first because of how much you love me. I would put you first in every area and allow you to transform me. I would put you first in every area of my life and realize that the places you've sent me are to be on mission for you. So move through us now, Lord Jesus. Make us the people you want.